This is The Guardian. This week, we've got a slightly different kind of episode. As the Conservative Party has tumbled from this... We will do everything we can to give you more control over your lives. ...to this... Some mistakes were made. I think we've all been marvelling at the strange and chaotic state of the modern Tories, which is the subject of a definitive new book by Professor Tim Bale. So we decided to invite him on to try and explain seven years of Tory turmoil. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today is Tim Bale, politics professor at Queen Mary University in London and the author of a great new book, The Conservative Party After Brexit, subtitled Turmoil and Transformation. Arguably a bit more turmoil than transformation so far, but we shall see. Hello, Tim. Hello, John. Nice to be here. On the morning of Friday the 13th of December 2019, remember that, seems like another age, the Conservatives were waking up, if they'd been to bed, to what was being described as a landslide victory. Our exit poll is suggesting that there will be a Conservative majority when all the votes are counted after this election of December 2019. They were looking at an 80-seat majority, thanks largely to a new wave of support coming from people, many of whom had never even dreamed of voting Tory before. It was a night that saw the electoral map redrawn. Boris Johnson seemed to have pulled off the impossible. The Labour Party, meanwhile, faced a wipeout that some people said would lock them into an even longer spell in opposition. You think about where they are today, where the Tories are today. We're on our third Conservative Prime Minister since that election, with most polls now showing the Tory party around 20 points behind. Let's talk about how we got here, really, Tim. As much as Theresa May and Boris Johnson and Liz Truss's premierships have all ended in disasters of one kind or another, if you look at what happened in 2019, it was remarkable. There's a quote in your book from Neil O'Brien, the Conservative MP, made really in the immediate aftermath of the 2019 election. He he said, since 1997, he was in celebratory mood. We've gone from having 3% to 34% of seats in the North East, from 13% to 43% of seats in the North West from 24% to 75% of seats in the West Midlands. Our new intake are 30% of the parliamentary party and their seats are different and on and on he gushes, right? Really paying tribute to this seeming miracle that had been pulled off. How did they manage to drop the ball after that? (laughs) Well, I think it has to do partly with the fragility of the electoral coalition that that big victory depended on. Uh, On the one hand, you had, you know... um, very often white, working class, less educated voters, many of them who lived in the Midlands and, and the North, who were voting Conservative for the first time, um, partly because of Brexit, but mostly because they just wanted Brexit done. And they wanted Brexit done so that uh, the Tories could uh, make all these improvements to public services that they were promising. This Parliament just refuses to get Brexit done. We are a party that is going to get Brexit done. And yes, they will have an overwhelming mandate from this election to get Brexit done. And we will honour that mandate by January the 31st. And on the other hand, you had a bunch of, you know, fairly traditional Conservative voters who were uh, voting Conservatives because they couldn't stand uh, the thought of Jeremy Corbyn um, taking away (laughs) their assets. This manifesto is... And I'm proud of it, the most radical and ambitious plan 
to transform our country for decades. And the problem with that is, of course, the, the two um, sides of that electoral coalition have actually quite different interests. They might have been united on the cultural front, as it were, you know, worried yeah. about Jeremy Corbyn, keen on Brexit, worried about immigration. But certainly on the kind of economic and public policy front, they were very different. The, the voters in the North and, and the Midlands, the so-called Red Wall voters, actually wanted government to do more, whereas the other set of voters <laughs> wanted government to do as, as uh, least uh, as possible. OK, that's very persuasively put, but there's a huge story here, clearly, about chaos and incompetence and sort of borderline anarchy at the top. That's the, that's the other half of the story. Yeah, that's, that's very true. I mean, I think, think, I mean, obviously, you know, all parties are to some extent uh, governed by the, the, the kind of personal interests of the, of the individuals who are competing for power. Uh, but I think in, in the Conservative Party, you know, that has really got out of hand. And I think, you know, Boris Johnson, <laughs> Boris Johnson was the kind of epitome of that. But if you look at Liz Truss and indeed Rishi Sunak, you know, they spent quite a lot of their time actually undermining Boris Johnson, just as he spent quite a lot of his time undermining um, Theresa May. So, you know, that, yeah, that yeah, um, yeah. competition for for the top job, I think, is also, uh, as you say, you know, one very, very important factor. Let's talk about ideology, notwithstanding what you just said. When Andrew Rawnsley of The Observer reviewed your book, he said this. He said, Tim Bale contends persuasively that the Brexit virus has transformed the Tories from a mainstream party of the centre-right into an unstable amalgam of radical right-wing populists, hyper-libertarians and market fundamentalists. Now, they're his words, not yours, but there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I take it that you buy that broadly speaking, and I was just just wondering in terms of sort of um, their figureheads, if you could talk us through those three factions and also where they're at right now. So let's start with the radical right wing populists. Yeah, I think you know this in some ways is the central question of the book, and the extent to which the um, party has transformed itself from a you know a centre right mainstream outfit into a sort of ersatz populist radical right party. Okay. Clearly people like Rhys Mogg, clearly people like Boris Johnson, clearly people like Suella Braverman, people like Kemi Badenoch as well, uh, represent that um, faction um, pretty well. Uh, Hyper-libertarians, well, they're in disgrace. That's Liz Truss and Quasi Kwarteng among, amongst <laughs> other people, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, they are the people who, you know, take kind of Thatcherism to the nth degree. You know, they are um, keen on a smaller state as possible, taxing as little as possible. The faction of 80-hour weeks and deregulated everything. I know them. Okay. And then the <laughs> yeah. market fundamentalists, who you would think were, were intersected somewhat with the hyper-libertarians, but they're, they're somewhat distinct, are they? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure I'd make a big distinction between them. I mean, I think it, in some ways, Rishi Sunak ah, um, yeah. is the the other side of Thatcherism. If so you more like. a you slight the, patina of, of vague social liberalism a bit with those hyper-libertarians, with the market fundamentalists? Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think that that might be true. I mean, I think if, you, if you're talking about Thatcherites, Rishi Sunak, who is much more of a in some ways, genuine Thatcherite. You know, I, I don't think he holds up Mrs. Thatcher simply as this sort of tax-cutting yeah, icon. Yeah. Um, he's got a much better understanding of what she was actually like in government, which was sometimes quite cautious, sometimes quite canny, and always trying to get the money in before she um, shoved it out the other side again. Now, another um, thing which is really interesting in the book is your conception of what you call the Conservative Party in the media. Right-wing newspapers, columnists, very loud voices online. Now, I dare say, GB News in particular, Talk TV to some extent. This force, which is arguably more powerful now than elected MPs, I often think that, I think. That's always been there. But I suppose your view is, correct me if I'm wrong, that the power of the party in the media, it's now reached a point where it's sort of unprecedented. Is that your view? 
Yeah, uh, unprecedented and also integral to the party. I mean, I think, you know, as political scientists, we're used to, um, you know, anatomizing political parties by saying, you know, there's the party on the ground, which is the membership. There's the party in central office, which is CCHQ, and, you know, the, the party in elected office, which is, you know, the party at Westminster, the MPs. But I think we forget that there is another very important component part of that party, which is the, the party in the media, because it's the party in the media, which to some extent sets the agenda and indeed sets the parameters for what conservative leaders uh, can do, partly because it plays such a big role in the kind of conversation, if you like, of the conservative uh, milieu. And I think, you know, the idea that simply because someone holds a membership card or because someone sits for the Conservative Party in Parliament, they're more important than, you know, the, the bunch of people who, you know, write the editorials, write the op-eds, uh, you know, go on GB News, uh yeah, but also tweet. The, the online world is massively important when we're talking about this new level of power that this force has got, right? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And, and also what social media does in particular is break down, if you like, the, the deference that there used to be between your kind of backbench conservative MPs on the one hand and the leadership on the other. Because on social media, on Twitter, you know, you can become a legend in your own lunchtime, really, within, you know, 24 hours of entering parliament if you've got that you know, sort of social media game going for you. And I think, you know, we have the rise, if you like, of these kind of celebrity conservatives. And I, I do think that they have made a big difference, actually, to the membership. Go on, then. Give, it, give us some examples of, of the celebrity conservative. Well... I think I think Reece Mogg is 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 a very very good example. Yeah, yeah. Someone whom previous leaders wouldn't have touched with a barge pole in terms of putting them in their cabinet, um, <laughs> and yet because you know he he became so popular with the membership, um, it was almost impossible I think for Boris Johnson to keep him out even if he'd wanted to. Uh, Boris Johnson himself, yeah, in a yeah. way, I think is is uh, you know uh, another uh, example. I mean, one of the really interesting things I think about, if you look at the membership of the Conservative Party, when we were surveying them, uh, when David Cameron was doing his negotiations uh, with Brussels, um, a very large proportion of them, I think even perhaps the majority, but it was definitely the plurality of them, said, "Well, we're not quite sure how we're going to vote in the referendum, but you know, we'll wait to see what Cameron comes back with, and then make up our minds." And then you you know fast forward. Uh, two or three years later, and they're all saying, I'd even be prepared to see the breakup of the Conservative and Party. And the UK. And indeed the Union, yes, in order to get uh, Brexit. You know, I, I mean, that is a huge shift. And I think, I think that does in part have to do with what I would call these celebrity politicians. Let's go on to talk very briefly. Let's just rattle through um, recent Conservative history, starting with Theresa May, the much misunderstood Theresa May. One of the most um, telling chapter titles in your book is Hubris to Nemesis when it comes to Theresa May. I was very struck by the story you tell about Philip Hammond, who was then the Chancellor of the Exchequer, listening to um, Theresa May give her conference speech in 2016, is that correct? Immediately after the referendum. And he's, lis he's yep. listening to her really laying out a hard Brexit. But let's state one thing loud and clear. We are not leaving the European Union only to give up control of immigration all over again. And we're not leaving only to return to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. That's not going to happen. We are leaving to become once more a fully sovereign and independent country. And the deal is going to have to work for Britain. And he says, this is your quote, it's a brilliant quote, I was absolutely horrified by what I was hearing. All I remember thinking was, there will be a television camera that will be on your face. If you move a muscle, it will be the story on every 
front page of every newspaper tomorrow. I remember I wasn't even really listening to her. Big moment, right? Now, your book does this very eloquently, but why did she become a hardline Brexiteer? This is all about, isn't it, the capture of that part of the debate by the European Research Group, the ERG, those people. We've been around for a long time in one guise or another. This goes back to the, the days of John Major. But it is interesting, isn't it, that Theresa May, who had been a Remainer, became a hard Brexiteer in an instant. Yeah, and I think that was partly to do with the fact that she had been a Remainer, albeit a very reluctant Remainer, much to the frustration of um, David Cameron. I think she was absolutely determined to prove to those who had voted Leave and who hadn't um, you know, voted for her probably in the leadership contest uh, that she was now uh, one of them and that she was going to push through Brexit in the way that they wanted it um, pushed through. And I think it also had to do actually with the fact that she was the Home Secretary and therefore perceived the referendum result very much in terms of uh, immigration. Yeah. Uh, and in order to do anything about immigration, we were going to have to leave the single market. And therefore, if we're going to leave the single market, then we may as well leave the customs union. We may as well do a hard Brexit rather than a soft Brexit. Now, the 2017 election, the defining event in Theresa May's spell as leader, she was seen as the loser of that election, clearly, despite the fact that she held on to power. It's an interesting election, that, because um, I spent the latter part of that election in Walsall North. This is kind of arcane, but one of the few seats that went from Labour to the Tories. And I thought I might might have been in the wrong place, but actually, in terms of what happened at the 2019 election, I was in the right place. Mm-hmm. Because that's when we f- we saw the first stirrings of that movement of former Labour voters to the Tories. And it happened elsewhere in 2017. If you look at election results in places like the old Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire coalfields, there was a big movement from the Tories to Labour at that point in response to Theresa May and her Brexit messages and all of that. I think, in retrospect, Theresa May did a lot of the legwork that led on to that victory in 2019. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, if if you know, if we sort of put in footballing analogy, I mean, you know, she would be credited with an assist, if you like, because you know, Boris Johnson might have actually put the ball in the net in 2019, but she definitely made that winning pass that allowed him to do so. Quite right. I mean, a lot of the 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 seats that flipped in 2019. Um, did so after you know nearly flipping almost invisibly to to people in in, in 2017. You're, you're absolutely yeah, yeah. right, and that's partly obviously because she, in some senses, was playing the same card as Boris Johnson, in the sense that uh, you know she was appealing to people who wanted Brexit done, but she was also suggesting uh, to these people that you know she cared about public services, about the burning injustices. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And she was, you know, finally going to do something about um, Britain's public services. There are amazing passages in the book, the memories of people watching her campaign, yeah, saying they'd never seen anyone as nervous. I mean, one shouldn't feel sorry for front-rank politicians, in my opinion, or very rarely. But I did feel sorry for her. I I actually met her once. I did um, any questions on Radio 4 with Theresa May. This is long before she Mm -hmm. was the leader. And she was really nervous. She was a nervous person person yeah yeah quite ill quite ill suited to the rough and tumble of politics in that yeah i mean you know it's interesting talking to some of the strategists around that 2017 campaign i mean they they just weren't um as aware as perhaps they could or should have been quite how nervous uh campaigner and poorer campaigner she was otherwise they probably wouldn't have gone for that you know strong and stable with Theresa may um, yeah, yeah. strategy that they employ. I mean, there's another point about Theresa May as well, which is that, in my opinion, of the options available, her Brexit deal, in retrospect, <laughs> compared to what we ended up with, uh, was by far the better option. But um, 
that sort of fell foul of the Labour Party's behaviour and the, and the weird, volatile internal politics of the Tory party and all that. And that's where you see the ERG's influence there, because, you know, it probably would have been acceptable to the, you know, the majority of Conservative MPs had the ERG not been absolutely determined by that stage that they weren't going to, you know, take her Brexit um, at any price. And they basically wanted her out and Boris Johnson in. So, yeah, I mean, it was doomed in some ways, partly because it was her yeah, deal. Yeah. So we now move into the Boris Johnson area. Here's a Kurt question. How much damage has Boris Johnson done to the Conservatives? <laughs> well, I mean, he's certainly created their uh, opinion poll ratings um, in, in the short term. In the long term, and I, mean, I think he has done quite a lot of damage because I think he has pushed them even further towards this kind of ersatz populist, radical right uh, kind of party. Um, that- but he, interestingly, not not him in terms of his political instincts, very much a flag of convenience, it can be argued, right? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, in as much as he's got any um, opinions at all, they are simply <laughs> uh, simply to, to do with, you know, getting um, Boris Johnson to the top of the party and course, staying there and winning over as many voters in order to persuade his, his um, party to keep him there. Um, but, you know, part of the the way that he ran the Conservative Party and part of the way that he appealed to people was through this very kind of populist strategy where he portrayed himself as this sort of tribune of the people against the establishment. And so I am standing before you today to tell you, the British people, that those critics are wrong. The doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong again. The people who bet against Britain are going to lose their shirts because we're going to restore trust in our democracy. That's why Partygate was the worst thing that could happen, right? Because if you say, I'm like you, and with a sort of nod and a wink, you're in on my pranks and all that, you know, the the general jovial tone of Johnsonism and the idea that 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 he was a rogue and all that played quite well for him for as long as he styled himself being on the side of other people. God knows how he did that, really, in terms of the distance between him and voters in Mansfield and Stoke-on-Trent, but he did, right? But then Partygate is just a vivid illustration of what a deception that is, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I I think that's right. There's only so far that people, you know, um, love a lovable rogue (laughs) once uh, once, uh, he starts doing things that really offend people and i think you know yeah but more to the more to the point that he that he says i'm you know i'm an anti-establishment yeah. <laughs> prime minister yeah. and then what the parties are is like something from pre-revolutionary france that's about the decadent elite not obeying the same rules as the rest of yeah, us right? yeah ab- absolutely right but in terms of what he's done for the conservative party anyway i mean he's yes he gave them this big majority but it was you know built on a form and a style of politics that i think um given the way that britain is if you like liberalizing given the way it's more multicultural more, more multi-ethnic than it was and given the, the direction of travel if you like of the country could actually be a dead end or so although it did well for the conservative party in in 2019 and you know it could with the stop the boats thing you know save them from a big defeat this time around i think in the long term that's not necessarily the way that uh, the conservative party needs to go i will ask you about that in a moment so let's just move on as the conservative party did <laughs> to liz truss now on page 275 in your book you say truss's elevation to the premiership represented the triumph of the so-called hyper-globalist strand, which we mentioned a moment ago, within British conservatism, but not for long. As someone who's really closely studied conservative politics and all of these machinations, how did you feel watching that unfold in sort of, you know, doubled 
speed. I mean, it was the most amazing. I went to Conservative Conference during Liz, Liz Truss's brief tenure as the Prime Minister, the leader of Conservative Party. It was incredible to behold. We need an economically sound and secure United Kingdom. And that will mean challenging those who try to stop growth. I will not allow the anti-growth coalition to hold us back. Be surprised by how quickly it unravels. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone could have predicted that she'd only last 49 days in power. If you'd have, you know, taken odds on that, the book is, it would have been hundreds and hundreds to one. But I, I didn't think that, you know, she she actually had what it took to be prime minister. I mean, if you just looked at the ways that she communicated with people, I just didn't think she was up to the job. I also think, you know, she is very much an ideologue. And Boris Johnson clearly was the, the very opposite. He would do and say anything, as it were, to, to get into power and to keep power, had no real essential beliefs. But she did have these essential beliefs, which um, quite honestly, you know, were, were bound, I think, to come into conflict with <laughs> common sense, with with reality, and, and indeed, in the end, with the markets. Doesn't all go well, that though, does it? In the sense that the sort of flexible, roguish model leadership, that lasts about three years. <laughs> And the ideological form of leadership lasts just over a month. <laughs> I mean, in either case, you're not talking about the long haul here. No, I mean, but one of the problems for Liz Truss as well was that she just didn't have the support of her MPs. I mean, that, that accepted party leadership uh, election of 2022, I mean, it was a disaster, really, because, you know, Liz Truss got through without much support from MPs and she was elected not on a huge majority um, by the, the grassroots, and so there was this clear mismatch between what people at Westminster wanted and, and what um, the party on the ground, the rank and file, uh, wanted. And I don't think you can have a mismatch like that for, for very long. Last question in this chunk. I don't think we've ever known Tory politics to be as volatile, as unstable as this, right? That is true, isn't it? This is sort of unprecedented how, how kind of chaotic and ever-changing and shifting it's turned out to be. Yeah, I mean, we've never seen turnover like this. I mean, you... I sp- why is that? Why now? Well, I mean, I think Brexit obviously did play uh, a part. I mean, I think, you know, Brexit kind of accelerated some of the trends towards populism that we've been talking about, um, but it also created this massive public policy headache uh, for um, the Conservatives, which in some ways, you know, is insoluble. Um, yeah, and- that's right. So if you're faced with an, unsol- yeah. an insoluble political or economic puzzle, the result is chaos because yeah. it's just constantly people barge into the front saying, well, I can solve this. Give me a go. And then they go, oh, no, I haven't solved <laughs> yeah, it. Right, exactly. Next you will cycle through people who claim that they have the solution and clearly haven't got the solution <laughs> because it's not a problem capable of solution. That's, that's quite right. But I think it is also, you know, come back to what we were talking about before, you know, politics has in some sense is sped up because of social media. Uh, And, uh, you know, the 24-7 coverage of politics means that, you know, the the kind of previous rhythms of politics no longer count in in some way. Stuff occurs, you know, in and out of season, as it were. There are also big sort of demographic shifts within what was previously considered to be the Tories' core support, which we're going to talk about in a minute. We will pause now. When we come back, we'll talk about the future of the supposedly most successful political party on Earth. Welcome back. We're now going to be talking about the future of the Conservative Party um, and whether they have one, although history suggests that they'll probably figure something out. With me is Tim Bale, the 
politics professor at Queen Mary University and author of The Conservative Party After Brexit. Tim, clearly on the back of everything that we've discussed up to this point, they're in a mess, right? And it's very tempting when parties are in a mess to talk about them as a spent force, right? Where are they now as regards their revival prospects? That's 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 the question, I suppose. Because notwithstanding the fact that Rishi Sunak clearly wants to be seen as a leader who gets things done and who's exited this period of turmoil, I mean, God knows, it's only a matter of days since Boris Johnson was in front of the Privileges Committee <laughs> and, you know, Suella Braverman is sounding off and that tells you about this sort of febrile state of her part of the party. None of it feels stable even now, right? No. What are they going to do? Well, I mean, I think, you know, Rishi Sunak, as you say, has, um, you know, decided on the recipe um, for uh, success or at least the recipe for the next election, which is, you know, fiscal conservatism plus uh, populism on... Um, immigration, and he hopes that that will bring together, you know, the the two halves of that electoral coalition that we were talking about uh, a little bit earlier. On, on the optimistic side for the Conservative Party, you'd have to say that you know Labour does have a big mountain to climb. I mean, it was the worst defeat since 1935 for Labour. You know, I don't think it's a sort of totally lost cause uh, a Conservative win at the next election, or at least you know a, a degree to which they can limit the damage. But on the other hand, as you say, they, they are in a mess. I mean, the economy certainly is not firing on all cylinders. They're, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for them to get real wages up, you know, six months out of the general election, which they're going to need to do. I mean, they can throw a few tax cuts at people, but I mean, people have, you know, had to pay a lot more tax after budget. The NHS is in an absolute mess. And you can see that in the way that people are saying, you know, it's worst performance ever. And that'll be a huge issue for for Labour. Yeah, and uh, the thing that brings that into focus is the absence of a sort of strong economic message lies, to, to my mind, in a comparison with Thatcher, really, which is that the most successful single political act of any government, probably since the Second World War, that's not quite right in the sense that the Labour Party's creation of the NHS was a, was a huge moment mm. that, that unquestionably sort of validated Labour's appeal to the electorate for years and years and years. But the Tory answer to that came later, and that was selling off council houses, right? Allowing people to be property owners. And that that was the enduring legacy of the Thatcher period, and it brought voters who'd probably never voted Conservative before on board. Yeah. I cannot think of anything from the last 13 years that's even remotely comparable mm. to that. There's no direct story of changing people's lives positively in an economic No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And in fact, you know, you described the, the whole housing thing as enduring. <laughs> in fact, it hasn't really endured, has it? Especially for a lot of young people as well. No, and it's got exactly that. That issue's gone the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you're, you're, you're quite right to point to the fact there isn't one obvious message apart from, you know, we've cleared up the mess. But given that they created the mess in the first place, that isn't a particularly attractive uh, message for, for the electorate. So, I mean, I, I think on the fundamentals, the Conservatives are in, are in big trouble. You're absolutely right. The other thing is, talking about the fundamentals, there's something very fundamental going on in terms of the, the electorate and who they are, which is that a big chunk of the middle class is changing or has changed you're nodding there are places that traditionally we think of as being very solidly tory which now are sort of culturally liberal and sort of left-leaning really 
and have begun to move away from the Conservative. They're big shifts, aren't they, which the Tory party doesn't seem to have really moved to address. No, they are big shifts. You're right. I mean, and it's partly driven by people moving out of, um, you know, London to um, some of those suburbs. And it's partly yeah, due yeah. to uh, actually, you know, the expansion of higher education as well, because, you know, one of the, the big differences uh, in terms of people's, you know, willingness to vote Conservative or otherwise is, is you know, whether they've, they've got a degree or not. And of course, more and more people have degrees. And that, to some extent, is associated with more kind of liberal outlook on those those social issues. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the Remain Leave divide in those areas is very much more towards Remain than it is to, to Leave. I mean, I'd have to, you know, exercise a note of caution here. I mean, I think, you know, some of those so-called blue wall seats are vulnerable and especially to the Liberal Democrats. But you have to remember that in, in many of those seats, although they are becoming, you know, more Remainy, more progressive, however you want to call it, you know, they still have pretty big conservative majorities that will take quite a lot um, to overturn. Whereas, you know, some of the seats in the North and the Midlands um, that the Conservatives are desperate to hold on to are probably in some ways more vulnerable to attack by by Labour yeah, and to a certain yeah, extent the, yeah. the Liberal Democrats. So although I, I think you're absolutely right to say there is a trade-off when we're talking about those populist policies, you know, you can alienate more people or, you know, as many people as you as you attract. Uh, actually, the Tories can stand to lose quite a lot more voters in those places without losing seats than is the case in in the so-called red wall, which is why I think they're putting so much emphasis on uh, on you know the stop the vote stuff. If the Tories do lose at the next election, let's just let's just assume that you know the odds play out in the way that they're expected to. I wonder what the Conservative Party will look like next. The Conservative Party, God knows if it's been chaotic and and um, volatile. <laughs> Over the last sort of seven or eight years, in opposition, it tends to go really crazy, right? And uh, we talked earlier about these factions and tendencies that are all in contention. That's when all that stuff is going to get thrashed out. I mean, arguably, that's happened in leadership elections we've had while they've been in power. But there will be a lot of introspection and who are we and what are we here for and all of that. And I wonder what your view is of the form that they're eventually going to come back in. But then there's a, a first question on the way to answering that, which I wanted to ask you. A lot of your book is about the hardline Brexiteers in the so-called European Research Group, the ERG, which, as we both know, blurred over mm. into the COVID. Was it called the COVID Research Group, the CRG? I COVID think Recovery Group, yeah. COVID Recovery Group. You know, they had these various guises as the news agenda yeah. shifted, right? But they were seen, Brexit hardman Steve Baker is the epitome of this, as being very, very powerful. And then you think back to the rebellion on the so-called Windsor Framework the other week, right? And they were down to, what, about 21 Tory MPs? That's right, yeah, 22, yeah. Are they a spent force? Uh, I mean, I think... They're certainly not what they were, although, you know, the, the Ruel bill, the, the one that's going to see some of this EU legislation supposedly fall off a cliff, uh, you know, at the end of the year, that, that might see them come back a, a little bit. But I, I do think, yes, that, you know, we passed peak ERG. But having said that, I think if the Conservatives do lose uh, the next election, they are likely to do what they've done before. And you look at the precedent, for example, of, you know, 1997, um, they're likely to, um, you know, to to double down on this populist track that they've already, you know, set themselves on. I mean, William Hague, in some senses, although he's seen as this sort of venerable, quite cuddly, centrist conservative, <laughs> when he was leader, was anything but. If they did double down on that sort of right wing populist, very Brexity sort of stance, who who are we talking about? Well, I think it's Kevin Badenoch or or Suella Braverman. Um, Being the be leader. Honest. 
Yeah, I mean, it's quite difficult to to pick out other candidates who I think have the traction with the membership and indeed, you know, with the with the party and the media. Uh, and indeed some of the colleagues. And it depends, obviously, quite how bad the defeat is, because that does then make a difference to the, you know, the um, the makeup, um, the composition of the parliamentary party. I mean, if we get a whole bunch of people in safe seats who are essentially kind of, you know, um, populist, then, you know, we may go that direction. If, on the other hand, you know, people in the safest seats turn out to be a little bit more moderate, uh, you know, we lose the sort of Jonathan Gullises of this world, you know, because Stoke goes back to Labour, then, you know, we, we could see a more moderate Conservative Party arise. Who or what would be the flag bearer for what remains of so-called One Nation Conservatives? That was Tom Tugendhat the last time they had a leadership election. Well, he didn't get very far. And in fact, he, he ended up back in Liz Truss, weirdly. Well, I, I'm afraid I just don't see them, really. I mean, I've always been rather sceptical about this One Nation label anyway, to be honest. I mean, it's a very much a kind of vague um, <laughs> term which um, most Tories at one time or another seem to adopt. I don't see at the moment an obvious standard bearer for that um, side of conservative politics, partly because I think it has over time, you know, shrunk very, very badly. If you look at the selections over time, you will see that more and more conservative candidates and MPs are from the kind of right wing, you know, Brexity, yeah, yeah, uh, or indeed kind of you know hyper globalist faction of the of the Conservative Party. But equally, Kemi Badenoch is not quite right wing populist. She's a bit that way, but is more sort of hyper globalist. Is that right? Well, I think she's a combination of both, actually. Okay. I mean, I think in some ways she's the kind of, that's why I, I think she has such a strong chance. She's the ideal candidate in the sense she appeals to both sides. She appeals to the, you know, the kind of hyper-globalist side of the of the, the party, but she's also very much a culture warrior. Okay. So put those two things together and she's probably got, you know, support from, from either side. And I think that probably makes her the favourite. So Ella Bradman, by, by contrast, is a right-wing populist. I mean, that, that, that really blurs conservative politics into, as you said earlier, the kind of populist politics we see on the continent. Yeah, I mean, she would probably, you know, bristle at that comparison. But I mean, it's certainly, you know, Nigel Farage and uh, Reform UK, as it as it's currently called. I mean, you know, you could quite easily see her placed in, you know, um, the leadership of that particular party, and and you know, with, with no difficulty at all. Assuming they lose the next election, do you think that's the most likely combination of leadership candidates? Will be Suella Bradman versus Kemi Vadenoch. I suspect so. I mean, I think Penny Morden would like to have another go as well. And they're, you know, the they're walking be... enigma. Who knows what her politics are? <laughs> yeah, I don't think even be... she knows. Yeah, there will. I mean, actually, I should say Penny Morden is a very good example of the party in the media and, and its power. I mean, she was completely destroyed in that 2022 leadership uh, contest, you know, by, uh, by the media, um, to be honest. But as I say, it slightly depends on the composition of the party. If they lose really badly, you know, who is it in the safe seats who gains the majority? Is it more sort of, you know, uh, centrist, moderate conservative MPs, relatively speaking? Or is it a bunch of, you know, very right wing um, conservative MPs who will then, you know, obviously uh, go for someone like um, Kemi Vadenoch or or Suella Braverman? God, your next book's going to be quite something, isn't it? (laughs) If I can stand and write another one about the Conservative Party, yeah. Please do. God knows (laughs) what the subtitle of that one will be. This one was called Turmoil and Transformation. Answers on a postcard. Anyway, that was a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Tim. Just to reiterate this, your book, The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation, published by Polity, is out now. And anyone who listens to this podcast and has an interest in all of this chaos is well advised to read it. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks. Really enjoyed it, John. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, amid the chaos, make sure you get your bearings by subscribing to Politics Weekly UK, wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave us a review. Before you go, please don't forget to subscribe to The Guardian's new podcast series, Cotton Capital, which is looking at The Guardian's links to transatlantic slavery. New episodes are released every Monday. Episode 2 follows Guardian journalist Maya Wolf-Robinson as she heads to Jamaica in search of the site of the former sugar plantation Success, which was once co-owned by the Guardian founder Sir George Phillips. Search for Cotton Capital wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 